Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome, everybody. Uh, on today's episode, we have with us Thomas Cohen, and we are here to discuss his wonderful book, Subaltern Frontiers, Agrarian Citymaking in Gurgaon. Thank you, Tom, very much for taking our time to speak with us about your uh, very thoroughly, deeply researched book that's so analytically sophisticated and such a joy to read. And we are very excited to hear more from you about how this book was conceptualized and the story that it tells. Um, So welcome and thanks for taking our time. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to to talk to to you about the book today. So thank you. Um, as is tradition at NBN, uh, I'd like to start by asking about your journey as an ethnographer and how you came to the discipline of geography and the method of ethnography. Um, so just to get a sense of your um, your own sort of intellectual genealogy. Yeah, so um, I actually started out as a like a political scientist. I studied political science at the University of Manchester. Um, and at the time, I was very... Um, politically involved I was being sort of politicized by um you know it's a time of the financial crisis there's a kind of uptick in in inequality in um you know in housing inequality in particular and um as part of that undergraduate course I began to take courses in, in urban geography and I found that geography provided me with this vocabulary and and a, and a set of um, framings, really, to understand the kind of world around me and what was happening, um, some of these transformations, particularly in cities, um, um, at kind of in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s. Um, I then, you know, I then I kind of became an urban geographer and I did an urban geography postgraduate course right at the time of the kind of uprisings um across the you know north africa and 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 west asia um it was a time of occupy and um some of the kind of student protests and the uprisings here in the uk um and again you know it was it was geography and geographers who were really speaking to that political moment um and and i at the time started to read you know Henri Lefebvre and David Harvey and Ruth Gilmore. Um, and, you know, I was quite inspired by the ability of these academics to engage in a grounded and political way in some of these social and spatial struggles, but also be able to speak to the kind of internationalism and globality so of, of these of these processes. So that kind of geography gives us both a vocabulary of um, a kind of grounded vocabulary of, of social spatial change, but also one that can speak to scale. And I think that, that's something that that sort of attracted to me me to it from a kind of political standpoint, and then later an academic one. Um, and then in, in terms of ethnography and doing ethnography, I think my um, kind of geographical perspective has always been. Um, drawn from those in geography that conduct um, urban ethnographies, largely feminist geographers, post-colonial geographers, who whose work troubles um, the kind of universalizing narratives that, we, that tend to take up a lot of space within geography. Um, so, and then, so that's partly what drew me in kind of broadly to ethnography later when I was doing my 
my PhD and my um, post post um, doctorate study, ethnography was a method that allowed me to to see into and understand a set of processes that that perhaps weren't easily um, understandable from through other kinds of methods and didn't provide and you know, ethnography provides that a kind of certain degree of richness um, and um, um, a kind of wealth of information that allowed me to p- tell a story about property, um, tell a story about labour migration uh, that that I was interested in telling uh, in my work. Um, thank you. Um, I would also be very keen to hear how what is what, what is the story of this book coming together? How the project was first conceptualized? Um, it, is this what you initially started, you know, was this what you wanted to do from the very beginning or is it a project that evolved uh, through your doctoral research and, uh, you know, field, field possibilities and serendipity? So I'm curious about how this book came to be. Yeah, so I kind of came to the city of Gorgown, which for those people that don't know is, is a kind of city um, about 20 kilometers southwest of New Delhi Um that in the 2000s was very notorious as a kind of prototype neoliberal or privatized um, urban development model. Um, And so around the same time, really, around 2010, when I was doing my postgraduate study, there were these really huge industrial strikes uh, and factory occupations at the Maruti Suzuki car plant in Gorgown that had quite significant kind of international resonance. So I was actually in London and at, at the beginning um, of these these strikes in 2011, 2010-11. And, you know, friends of mine and people I knew were translating the the literature and the pamphlets and the diaries from these factory occupations in from Hindi into English. And there's a huge amount of um, political and kind of, intellectual intrigue as to you know what was going on in the corner of Gorgown what how how is it that these you know thousands of workers have taken over their factory for weeks on end and partly because this form of uh, labor organizing was supposed to have been um, long gone a kind of figure of the past particularly in the minds of um, kind of those in in North America and, and, and Western Europe um so i so that's kind of my first encounter uh with gorgan was as this kind of site of radical labor politics and industrial action i then was fortunate to, enough to do a kind of some work for an organization in in delhi in 2011 um so i spent some time in delhi and i was introduced to this other iteration um of of gorgan and this was the gorgan which you know which i just kind of briefly introduced um, this model of privatized neoliberal urban development that was transformed from an agricultural town in the 80s to this bustling metropolis of 2 million people by 2010 um, and was composed um, of a series of, you know, privatized gated enclaves Governed, developed and governed by private real estate actors. And in many ways, this, this iteration of Gorgown fits in with both a kind of post-liberalization moment where um, there were economists and policymakers and scholars really championing the successes of, of uh, market liberalization in, in India, but also critical urban scholars who who saw Gorgown as a kind of another example, another iteration of the capture by global capital of um, rural space around the world. And so that was my, those were my two entry points into Gorgown. And in a way, if you read the introduction of the book, my own personal um, ex- kind of introduction to the city shape how I frame um, the structure of the introduction. I was, I, when I was doing postgraduate study, I was interested in new cities, in how, uh, in these kind of paradigms of capitalist urbanization. Uh, but at the same time, when I went to Visigal Gown, I saw all these f- kinds of um, 
processes and politics which were which were slightly um different there were there were these other geographies which weren't told um in the kind of mainstream uh, readings of this miraculous urbanization project one of which was the presence of these large scale um industrial strikes um and you know part of my initial interest in the city was well, how is it that we have on one hand this totem for um kind of high neoliberal urbanization sitting you know um shoulder to shoulder with um sort of large scale um automobile and, and garment export manufacturing uh, what are the kind of political social cultural processes that allow for those two kind of um factors and modes of production to take place together but there are also other things you know when you go to Gauguin you're like wait this is this is different right you have a city that's has you know the most at the time the largest um uh the largest special economic zone um in India the largest uh, private township in the in Asia in the 2000s the highest value real estate in the country um paired with um, over a hundred villages that scatter the interior of the city. Um, you have this mixture in Gurgaon of um, agrarian property regimes and private property. You have uh, on the edges of Gurgaon farmers who are kind of repurposing themselves as developers and leading, if you like, the frontier of, of um, real estate development. So it, I was interested and I was drawn into this quite uncanny form of urban, of global urbanization, which on one hand conformed to many of the things that we are told about uh, kind of global capitalist urbanization, but looked and felt quite different. And I was kind of pulled into the politics um, of that. Yeah, thank you. And you're so right. I feel like just the first like three, four sentences of the book, they set, I mean, you set this kind of the direction from which you're traveling to Gurgaon. It sets this kind of this almost this political vector that we're not driving from Delhi to Gurgaon and on the big highways, but we're coming from the interiors uh, to its kind of, you know, uh, to its glitzy center. And just that itself, I think, had me hooked. Um so maybe we can invite you to tell us the story of the book itself um, and what the book um, um, argues, what conversation it joins and the story of Gurgaon and agrarian city making um, that it tells. Yeah, so so the main argument of, of the book is that Gurgaon's urbanisation um, and perhaps um, quite, a, quite a lot of urbanisation, I would argue, in, in, in North India at least, is driven and shaped by um, agrarian landowners, agrarian institutions, and property regimes. So while um, a lot of attention had been paid within the literature to these kind of um, processes of urbanization, which were driven by dispossession of uh, the rural, uh, the kind of rural peasantry and the implantation of kind of capitalist labor and land markets. What I explore in this book is the ways in which um, the state and real estate capital build um, alliances and compromises with the agrarian world in order to access and transform rural land into real estate and also to manage and discipline migrant labor markets. So under this process of what I call agrarian city making, landowners are called upon by, by the state and by real estate developers to view themselves not as peasants, not as farmers or Kassan, Kassanis, but rather as brokers, as speculators, as landlords. Um, and they're called upon to speculate on, on their rural land, to repurpose agrarian property relations and um, manage the, the labour markets that kind of underpin the city's economy. Um, and so there's this kind of process of encounter which shapes uh, Gauguin's urbanization between the agrarian world and um, kind of urban real estate and industrial forces. And this hel- helps explain so much, I argue, of the kind of spatial landscape of accumulation that we see in Gauguin. So while 
in order to capture so much over 40,000 acres of rural land was transformed into urban property over the course of the first 30 years of Gowns' urbanisation. And in order to do that without state intervention, the first half of the book argues that the state and real estate firms have brokered a series of territorial alliances um, with agrarian landowners that have ceded certain territories and rents to agrarian landowners in exchange for market access to their agricultural land. So you, what you you end up with in Gorgan, and anyone that's been to Gorgan will know, is this sort of patchwork landscape of villages and um, urban real estate that kind of dominate the interior um, of the city. Um, these ceded territories, what are popularly referred to as urban villages, um, subsidise labour costs because it's within these urban villages that labour tenements are, are built by, by land, landlords. They also kind of mediate tensions within the landowning communities against um, otherwise quite violent forms of dispossession because they've not been fully dispossessed. They can hold on to their uh, village homesteads within within the urban village boundaries. And they also allow and pull in landowners into a broader economy of, of uh, real estate development and speculation. So I trace in chapter two of the book the ways that um, agrarian landowners mobilise their urban village rents and, and, and recycle them into investments in real estate and land speculation in the broader city. So there's this kind of um, relationship that the village uh, functional relationship that the village plays to the surrounding city. Um, the other kind of instantiation of these territorial partnerships is in the way that the, the state calls upon landowners and indeed the, the agrarian bureaucracy to convert what are quite complex um, agrarian property regimes, which are often you know, composed of a, quite, a mixture of quite complex um, customary rights and uses and exclusions into something which is kind of globally fungible and standardised as a real estate asset. And so two chapters of the book focus on the ways that agrarian institutions and so the bureaucracy of the revenue department, to be specific, uh, which are charged with the mapping and transfer of rural land and um, agrarian land, landowners are involved as, as kind of point men in the transformation um, and conversion of, of agrarian land. Um, and crucially, I, I should say that the way I think about these encounters between kind of the kind of urban and agrarian worlds is um, is, is, is in a way not entirely determined by urban um, real estate and capitalist forces, um, nor are they sort of necessarily monodirectional. So, in other words, the process of compromise and alliance that um, the the state and real estate act, real estate capital makes with the agrarian world, seed territory, seed power to these agrarian actors, and that power allows for the disruption, contortion, appropriation of other of these of uh, real estate and infrastructure development projects. Um, and that's where I kind of draw on Subaltan, the Subaltan literature. So this is why, I mean, this analytic, which foregrounds compromise alliance, helps me to explain this kind of awkward articulated landscape that you find on in what we might start to think about as agrarian cities, where urban real estate is paired with customary agrarian land. Rontier extraction is paired with industrial commodity production. Um, agrarian kind of bureaucratic institutions are at the heart of global real estate development projects, right? So that's the kind of um, um, story that I wanted to draw out from um, in the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, and on this sort of like this, 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 what you call this patchworked landscape. Uh, throughout the book, we encounter a whole host of characters. We meet brokers, we meet village elders, we meet industrial workers, 
middlemen, politicians and developers. Um, and I was just uh, curious to hear more about what your fieldwork looked like and how you navigated relations and these very disparate spaces, um, um, your access, your relations, um, the kinds of encounters and the kind of sort of life sharing um, that made your fieldwork. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to hear about that. Yes. Yeah. So um, my this project actually started out as a PhD project, which itself started out as a project to study labor tenements. So I was interested in these strikes that were going on and um, the role that the kind of space of social reproduction played. Uh, these kind of tenement spaces, which are built, as I said, in these seeded urban village territories um, where former kind of agrarian landowners were had sort of repurposed themselves as landlords and were were charged uh, with managing um, the kind of everyday lives of migrant industrial labourers in lieu of actual any public housing or public space in a city like Gorgans. It's quite a different space to, you know, the traditional Indian city. Um, and so to conduct that research on the kind of on, on kind of tenement life in Gorgans, I, I I engaged in. Um, kind of ethnographic research of the tenements. So I lived in a tenement room um, for a period of time and I kind of emplaced myself in local trade union organisations that were um, active within the tenements. Um, and that relationship that I had with the trade unions, and these are kind of small, uh, non-affiliated uh, trade unions, sort of part of a new wave of independent trade unions, but have some kind, some some sort of um, aspects of their work is slightly NGO like, um, but focused on issues of employment rights, um, citizenship rights, housing rights, and so on. That 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 relationship with the union spanned, you know, from 2012, 2013 to twenty nineteen when the last piece of fieldwork was done um, for this book. And so it was a very long um, gestating relationship that I had to build, um, not just with the trade unions, but also with my neighbours in the tenements, um, with landlords in the tenements. But it was through that ethnographic research with workers on their living and working conditions and how and their kind of mobilities through the tenements that I began to spend actually a lot of time with with tenement landlords because such as the kind of rhythms of tenement life in Gulgaon, most people will go to work at 8am. The, the kind of night shift, my neighbours who are on the night shift will be coming back and going to sleep. And so the middle of the day is actually quite quiet in these labour tenements. So I'd end up sitting and sort of playing cards or um, chatting with all these landlords. And that's kind of, that took me into a another world, really, um, which was more concerned with, you know, how is it that, these landlords are, are using their rents to engage uh, and become active participants in the land market, in the real estate market, which is a real kind of, t- takes up really the first half of the book is how um, real estate development is subtended by um, these agrarian um, actors and institutions. Um, so, so then I kind of, I think in chapter two of the book, I engaged I, I draw from a, a quite a large household survey of landowners that I, had, I basically had met across a number of years in Gulgaon to get a sense of where they were, you know, how much money they had received from selling their fields to developers, how, how they'd used that money, um, uh, how many kind of um, tenements they had. They, you know, a lot of, of these landlords will have used the money for sort of con- consumptive purposes too. Um, and that kind of builds the kind of first, well, chapter two and three of the book. Um, this kind of mixture of ethnography with some interview and and household survey. I then kind of around actually sort of at the end of my PhD realised that the state, while the kind of story of Gulgaon is one of state sort of deregulation and um, the state the state stepping aside to allow private actors to kind of manage and build urban space, the state still played a pretty essential role in um, encouraging and eliciting um, kind of private and entrepreneurial action from both real estate developers and, and the agrarian landowners. So I, I became more 
interested in the role that the state and the sort of state bureaucratic pro- processes play in shaping property markets um, in, in and the kind of the place that that held within Gauguin's story. Um, so I then undertook this kind of long form of ethnography within the revenue department um, of uh, the state of Haryana, which is the state that Gauguin's in, um, uh, that, that kind of bureaucratic office. Um, I did that partly because the issue of, unlike the issue of labour, where uh, which is quite sort of straightforward to study in a way, you kind of can spend time with workers, you could, I didn't do this, but you could go and be a worker in a, in a factory, some people do this, you can go speak to management, trade unions. The question of property and real estate and land is sort of slightly more opaque. People keep their cards understandably, probably rightfully, to the, close to their chest on that one. Um, and so in order to really get a good sense of the kind of practical uh, workings of the conversion of rural land into property, I felt like ethnography and ethnography of this, the state bureaucracy was probably the, you know, the most useful method to try and get those kind of rich accounts of of property, kind of the social life of property, if you like. Um, so I undertook like a, I guess, a year-long F participant observation of the of Potwaga, which is the lowest um, office within the revenue department. These are kind of an open courtyard office in the middle of Gogaon, which is responsible for um, <clears throat> uh, governing rural property relations, mapping property, transfer, converting um, rural property into urban property, uh, managing the mutation of ownership. Um, so a whole host of processes alongside other work that the office does based, uh, in providing kind of documentation for villages. Um, and that was a really kind of insightful year, really, about uh, where I really learned about how kind of opacity and uncertainty within state records um, is quite keenly mobilized by real estate actors as well as state to try and impress territorial claims. Um, so sort of counter to um, the kinds of calculative logics that we see often in literature and in urban politics in South Asia, influenced a little bit by, by James Scott's work. I... Um, more, more akin with Ananya Roy's work on mapping, I saw, I, I, I examined the ways that state bureaucrat, bureaucrats would unmap and remap um, property boundaries, would exploit uh, disjunctures between different accounts on property, um, uh, would mobilize opacity and uncertainty within the cadastral maps in order to uh, impress property claims and, and um, enshrine um, property claims into the record. Um, yeah, and then yeah, and then the kind of last couple of chapters of the book are more return to questions of labour, which are far more driven by again this kind of long form engagement with trade unions um, in in Gugau. Yeah, just sort of two follow up questions on that that I was kind of curious, uh, even when reading the book, is that through the book you're able to access very different sets of people who are in you know who have a power relation with each other and these relations could be fairly conflictual so you're spending time with uh, with uh, people living in the tenement blocks but also the landlords you're spending time with um, the government officials working uh, on land making land bureaucracy but also those who are trying to evade it so I was wondering how you manage to access and make relations with groups that are fairly fairly conflictually related with each other and also you you are able to spend a lot of time not just in the work I mean not just through work but also in the tenement blocks with female workers and um, because the, the the tenement blocks even sort of the public galleries and courtyards in these blocks can be fairly intimate spaces governed by rules of gender um, I, I, I would like to hear more about how you access these these spaces and make these relations. Yeah, I think so. In the first question, I think um, partly that's virtue of the length of time that I've done this project, such that I, I wasn't doing research with, um, for example, landlords and agrarian bureaucrats at the same time. Um, neither was I doing, I mean, 
most of my work with uh, workers took place before I then kind of went off and did loads of research with, their la- with landlords. Um, so, but of course, there was a process. There's, there's a, there's a, there was a kind of pra- a research practice w- where I had to uh, differentiate those spaces um, and not, um, you know, but be open about my interest in these different aspects of Gilgaon's organization uh, without kind of disclosing any particular information about, for example, workers to landlords, which would um, which wouldn't be great. But I think there's also, I mean, the, and, I, and I make this point in, in chapter five of the book, there is a very um, hierarchical and exploitative relationship between landlords and the tenements and, um, and migrant laborers um, who uh, are in a very precarious position and whose mobility through the tenements has to be constantly secured through ever increasing um, precarity. So the, the, the key aim of the landlord and the tenements is to keep their tenement um, uh, body moving, to keep workers moving through the tenements on a, on a very quick, um, um, over a very quick period of time in order to re- retain territorial power and um, but also to kind of satisfy the uh, work rhythms of the of the factory um nevertheless <laughs> with that in mind i did live in these tenements and some of the relationships between landlords and workers is a little bit softer than you might think coming from the outside so it isn't like as as is always the case right in in, in, in life, these kind of um, material and structural relationships slightly bleed when you look at them uh, in a kind of more everyday and ethnographic manner. You know, you've, there were landlords who were who were known to be more um, af- um, accommodating of late payments or accommodating with credit, who you know put on um, uh, festival small festival displays for tenants, and um, you know some even that kind of employed workers as kind of contract laborers for them um in, in the long run so yeah so so there is a kind of uh, a slightly quieter uh and fuzzier relationship that perhaps I, I couldn't really capture in the book um i kind of tried to gesture towards it but i couldn't but that but that fuzzier relationship sort of made it perhaps slightly easier for, for me to move between those two spaces in, in some cases. I think a lot of the time the landlords thought my interest in workers was really from a kind of social uh, kind of social work perspective. Um, uh, you know, I was interested in questions of like poverty and um, impoverishment um, and also questions of work in the factory, which the landlords sort of quite cleanly d- dislocated themselves from. So, um and then on your second point around the kind of access, particularly to these domestic uh, and intimate spaces, a lot of that those relationships were brokered through um, Nairi Shakti Munch, this uh, women's um, small independent kind of women women's rights organisation that also kind of acted to support the development of small trade unions for women workers in Gilgaon. So there was a kind of institutional relationship. And through that, I kind of built over across a period of a long time um, relationships with um, with workers where I was able to kind of speak to them about their, the kind of long durée of their lives. I tried to prioritise um, life history account kind of interviews. Um, some of those earlier interviews I did alongside a kind of um, a kind of friend as well, like a female friend. Um, in fact, in one kind of interesting encounter, which I can't remember if I write about in the book, um, I was speaking with a worker who was um, who was originally from West Bengal, and I don't speak Bengali, uh, and so I brought a friend who did speak Bengali, and um, it, for some reason, we I hadn't communicated that she could speak Bengali, so the interview was this kind of kind of interview. I kind of spent the afternoon of a Sunday with her, like four or five hours. Which and it was really stilted, and the kind of um, conversation was very much like commanded by me. And I, you know, that's a very that was very much um, characteristic of my engagements with many um, female workers in the tenements. Is that you know, I I have a huge amount of power in this relationship, and um, 
had to be quite aware of that and kind of take that into consideration when, when I was analysing the kinds of information I got. But suddenly in that in that particular interview uh, or kind of afternoon, um, the the person we were interviewing kind of became aware that my friend could speak Bengali. And suddenly this kind of conversation, which was really dry and boring, like took a completely different turn. And we spoke, we ended up chatting for hours about like um, favourite television shows. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily like research, um, you know, instrumentally valuable but it was a kind of valuable encounter for demonstrating the kind of limits and partialities of my relationships in the tenements i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals factor meals are ready to eat in heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed they're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, thank you. Because I felt that even um, with some fieldwork that I've done in Gurgaon, this idea of suspicion in so many of these spaces, if you're inquiring about, you know, land or inquiring about industrial work or even the lives of people in tenement blocks, I just felt like suspicion is such a, it was always with me in in fieldwork. And um, yeah, so yeah, yeah, your answer helps understand how you, um, yeah, how you manage that. Um, so maybe to go back to the the, the, the main uh, arc of the book, uh, you have this very productive uh, analytical frame of the frontier, which I think uh, was amazing because it captures this dualism. Because when we first think of frontiers, we think of this kind of fixed material, you know, hard thing. But then it's also imbued with all this imagination uh, and it's... Uh, and it's constantly changing. Um, and there are multiple frontiers in each imagined differently by a different set of people. Uh, and then there's a sort of, there's the dominant imagination of what Gurgaon is. And then there's the subaltern understanding of um, of, of its people. Um, so maybe if I could hear a bit more about this idea of the frontier and frontier making and frontier shifting and frontier unmaking that runs throughout the book, which is this kind of finite but infinite, fixed and you know unfixed material, but also imagined, imagined um, um, place making um, that the book is about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you know, obviously, I put it in the title, so I I feel it has some kind of central role in explaining the book. So I. Um, yeah, but but you're right. It does. It comes across in different iterations across the across the book, um, and I think what's useful about frontiers for me is that they can speak to those different iterations, right? So there's one sense in which the frontier um, that I try and talk about has been materially produced and really is epiphenomenal of the uneven development of southern Punjab slash Haryana in the 20th century. So the first chapter of the book is about how and um, the kind of insertion of Punjab um, under colonial rule into global capitalist sort of commodity markets um, led to the devastation of this southern district, Gorgaon, which was really seen as this kind of feeder district into the northern um, districts, which were the kind of big agricultural exporting districts, um, and in which the colonial officers really struggled to settle, in, in, to use the kind of colonial term, you know, they really struggled to, to enforce private property relations and kind of entrepreneurial agricultural behaviour. And so that story of, of uneven development where you, where you um, see this kind of relatively upward lifting development of northern Punjab and the devastation of what would become Gagan is a really is really important for laying the material groundwork for the revalorization of Gorgown in the 20th century. Um, and that revalorization is real. It has this kind of material background, back, backbone to it, but is also discursive 
in the sense that it relies upon a certain understanding of a gown from the from the 1970s as this backward um, uh, backward uh, former in pastoral region that has no real history um, has no has really got nothing going for it and it's very urgently uh, needs uh, redressal through in this case kind of capitalist intervention so here we see like the production of a discursive and an imaginative um, uh, frontier a frontier of if you like the classic colonial frontier of civilization being placed between Delhi and Gurgaon, which then justified um, uh, the real estate developers and the states moving into Gurgaon in the 80s and recapitalizing land. And there's this fantastic passage, which I include in the introduction of the book from um, the biography of K.P. Singh, who was the the chief executive of Delhi Land and Finance, the the developer that was is largely attributed for developing the, the kind of early um, neighbourhoods in Gurgaon, and actually is kind of synonymous, if you if you like, DLF is like synonymous with the Gurgaon model, where he kind of depicts Gurgaon as this thrillingly empty space with no history, this kind of bucolic landscape of austere nothingness that requires. Um, the markets to transform into something resembling the modern um and you know i think that's a re- that that um iteration of the frontier you see throughout gorgown's history so the early master plans um and planning documents on gorgown justified deregulation of planning regu- um planning restrictions by claiming that gorgown was going to be subject to urbanization and is subject to these kind of unruly, unstable forms of um, um, housing development and um, kind of informal markets, and thus required mar- kind of corporate market intervention, which the planning documents were going to enable. Uh, even the very latest uh, master plans that you find in Gorgown justify opening up vast tracts of forest and mountainous areas in Gorgown. They justify its urbanization through this threat of urbanization, um, and so this too here too you see the frontier being put at work. You know, where certain territories, certain practices of land are placed within a certain temporality, which is out of step with modernity and requires intervention from the state, or in, or in this case, intervention by the markets, on by which they use the idiom urbanization. But there is also another kind of um, iteration of the frontier, which I then find quite analytically useful, which is that one developed, um, you know, by um, scholars such as Jason Moore, but also his kind of historical scholars such as Vinay Gidwani, um, uh, feminist geographers, um, too, um, which attempts to show that frontiers are always of course ideologically produced but they also have to be materially produced you know if we claim that uh in order for for, for us to capture this rural bucolic organ we have to make it empty we have to make these histories annulled we have to mobilize um frontier actors to transform space there's a huge amount of work that has to take place at the frontier um and that and the kind of that that analytical um uh foregrounding of of frontier work helps to explain the compromises and alliances that then i i feel like sort of central to the story of of gorgown um so yeah i think i mean if uh, i guess the final kind of iteration is these kind of speculative the speculative work that the frontier does too. So uh, a chapter of the book, I think chapter three, details the ways that the planning apparatus of the state tried to encourage and elicit um, entrepreneurial and speculative behaviour among, um, you know, both kind of corporate real estate developers, but also agrarian landowners. Um, uh, And they do so by positioning very similarly to, you know, KP Singh back in the 1980s, all forms of land use, all forms of um, land value in Gurgaon as out, as only sensible through the rubric of, of real estate and real estate development. So they, they kind of tell a story to agrarian landowners in particular of certain 
futures of agrarian decline and a certain and they prospect a future a future temporality which is secured through real estate value so there's only one path which real estate uh, which agrarian land can can move toward and that's through its conversion into real estate and that's in part what drives uh, that kind of frontier work is what drives you know a, a small or medium-sized farmer to um, give up his kind of agricultural interests and and look to transform his land for real estate purposes um, and it's also you know I try and sort of demonstrate again there how that process is is, is largely um, a speculative one um, that doesn't necessarily align with um, the kind of calculative or formal logics of the state what we see on the these kind of in these frontier practices is agrarian landowners mobilizing caste power mobilizing the kind of aesthetic and normative registers of uh, the of the urban in order to uh, substantiate property claims often in lieu of actual uh, title documents or planning permissions um or um and, and so forth so uh, you know the, the there's a kind of um and here i draw on uh, laura bear's work on on speculation where she where she describes how speculation invites us to suspend calculative norms and impress quite other forms of logics and in this case caste logics aesthetic logics um um, kind of real estate based logics in order to secure kind of territory and secure power yeah just speaking of that i'm uh, on the point of like em- what you called annulment of history and emptying out of history and this has to be this kind of blank tabula rasa uh, i'm curious how uh, present past and future then come to relate with one another so the past has to be emptied out and then there's this kind of accelerated city making and rush of capital and people and then this sense of the not yet and the sense of that it is yet to come and this and the anticipatory modes of being and living and waithood um and how that then fires speculative practices not just in land and city making but also people's you know personal ambitions um and uh, personal life making um so I'm, I'm i'm curious then about this how the past is imagined how the future is waited for and the sense of rush in the present um and this you know yeah which one feels uh, immediately on one's skin when one is in Gurgaon, these, these three time frames um, sitting quite awkwardly um, uh, in relation to one another. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, like, the, there's not, a, um, although there's often, uh, it's often presented as a, a kind of unilinear movement from um, a kind of antiquated past to a kind of um, a modern uh, um, future substantiated by this kind of these kind of the physical fabric of Gauguin. Um What's so, I guess, uncanny and and interesting about, about Gauguin is the articulation of, for example, agrarian pasts, um, particularly the agrarian pasts of um, the dominant agrarian castes of Jats and Yadavs, um, in particular. Um, alongside this kind of as you as you describe it this kind of rushed um future oriented um develop uh, kind of real set of real estate values which are kind of pushing um um uh, agrarian landowners to engage in certain kinds of um practice on their lands um and 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 you and those temporalities shape kind of spatialities in the city so you see you know why is it then that you know if if these if these actors are no longer farmers or kasans and why do they hold on to their um village homesteads why do we still have urban villages and part of that's because of the kind of cultural um cultural values uh which are remobilized as political and economic values with which that which though which holding on to that identity as a kasan um is is useful for what's interesting then is how however is how those real estate values or the kind of uneven development of of real estate value in in Gurgaon ends up interrupting and fracturing some of those um um agrarian communities so you suddenly you see if you if you spend time in the villages in Gurgaon 
there's a subset of villages who have done very very well from Gorgon's urbanization and have made have been been able to um kind of convert themselves into kind of mini developers or land aggregators and make a life of them set for themselves outside the village if you like these are kind of often held up in in village chat as kind of the model villages to which all all agrarian landowners aspire toward but there are lots of um, uh, people living in villages who are from uh, those those same communities who are who are not experiencing that sort of transformative um, that transformative story. And so there's a kind of build up of resentment. And some would now argue there's uh, a return to a, a, an, uh, to the embrace of an identity of the Kassan rather than as the real estate developer or embracing a closer embrace of rural identities, um, which was kind of happening throughout my research. Although, um, um, you know, if I did my research now, I probably would be able to um, look at it in more detail. Yeah, just on that, my uh, my next question was about this category of people who have um, who who've had very intense social mobility um, through the urbanization of Gurgaon. Um, so I'm curious then because you know the book speaks uh, very powerfully about um, uh, about the idea of conflict and capture and then how it's it's not so straightforward and also these kind of gets more blurred with uh, with what you call alliances and compromises but I'm also curious about these more happy happy collusions that have happened where people's own personal life projects have come to be threaded um, through this project of city making and there has been uh, intense social mobility for not just certain families and caste groups, but also entire villages, like you mentioned. And I'm curious about what work that does to sustain these alliances and compromises um, and how they then fit into this, the, the patchwork landscape of the city in the making. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, on one hand, I think um, there, are, there are a lot of um, uh, agrarian um families and formerly agrarian families and members of the agrarian community have done very well out of um, um, their remediation as kind of real estate actors and indeed as um, industrial actors. So one of the first kind of movements of agrarian uh, landowners into real estate was into industrial real estate. They were in the in the kind of uh, late 90s, early 2000s, lots of uh, landowners in Gulgaon were buying up industrial plots in the in the states, industrial estates, which they then lease out at quite high values to what was then manufacturing industry, but now has become more um, kind of BPOs and um, service sector. Um, so there are there are you know you will find people that have done very well, uh, and when I spent time in the bureaucrat in in the Petuari office. Um, that's certainly a place where you'll find the kind of more the kind of upper echelons of the um, what I think of as these kind of elite rentiers, these agrarian actors who've been able to <clears throat> mobilize uh, probably inherited uh, land holdings, the kind of social capital that that comes from uh, agrarian um, community to to kind of transform themselves quite cleanly, if you like. Um, but what I want, what I try to kind of emphasize across the book really is how these alliances are quite unstable and are often um substantiated far more on the um on the kind of speculative aesthetics of um agrarian transformation rather than its material uh realization um and that's partly how i read um the kind of more the kind of demise of the gorgon model so Gauguin was really pumped as this as this extraordinary story of um, the developmental um, purpose of, of real estate development across the 2000s. It's kind of potential for real estate uh, development to transform an entire society. By the by, around 2000 and maybe 14, 15, when the um, just after the financial crash and the kind of handing over of power from the Congress. Uh, in Haryana and at the central level to the BJP, we Gauguin begins to uh, experience, you know, a, a massive uh, slide in real estate value. The, the, the whole real estate industry kind of gets suspended um, off the back of um, a, a kind of capital flight that Lorena Searle has written about in her work. Um, 
of international investors out of out of India and out of certain projects, particularly in Gurgaon. Um, and you get this kind of series of land scandals which embroil political actors. So um, there was a, f- a number of scandals involving the state, the state acquiring land, purpose, um, sort of compuls- on compulsory purchase orders or eminent domain, and then handing it over to private developers. So the story kind of loses Gilgal model, kind of loses its shine in the in the twenty fifteens, and um, alongside the kind of slow econ- economic stagnation, this this uh, shiny um, alluring. Uh, story about you can change yourself if you transform yourself into a real estate actor becomes less compelling and so some in the book I kind of talk about some scholars and writers who have who've discussed how this has fed into an emergent Hindutva agenda uh, and kind of cultural politics uh, in Gurgaon that wasn't kind of a central feature of my book but it's I think certainly something which I began to see towards while I was writing up my book really um and, but also, you, you know, the, the more recent strikes in Punjab, you could partly, um, you could partly understand as a response to the failures of things like uh, projects like the Gurgaon model to actually deliver on these promises for um, real estate um, sort of transform real estate based transformation. So, what I think is important there is to understand that these alliances and compromises that I discuss are entirely unstable. Um, that they not only cede power and certain degrees of control to these institutions and actors to, you know, subvert development projects, to make, you know, uh, maintain large areas of monopoly rents within very high value, uh, otherwise really high value real estate value land. Um, but they have the potential to break down and to forge other forms um, of alliance. And so that's kind of what I try and trace in the conclusion of, of, of the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, another thing that's quite uh, powerful in the book is that for the first half and more, uh, we are seeing all these contests that are being played on um, about making making a claim to the city and getting a sort of you know a share of the city, which are all being played on the material sort of like reality of the ground. It's really the material land, and then towards the end, we meet this footloose labor that is central to city making and who are negotiating belonging and urban citizenship but but with without any access to land except for through this very exploitative rentier economy um, so also just their placement uh, at the end of the book um, just I think brings it together so powerfully but maybe if we could hear more about their contests uh, around urban belonging and citizenship um, um, which and and their presence in the city, which is tied through the question of labor and not land, um, yeah, and how that how that um, fits into this urban city making. Yeah, so I think this goes back to my original intentions of the project, which is try to understand how the geographies of industrialization and labor were knitted into, in seeming incongruity, these geographies of high value land and real estate. And so you're right, the first half of the book kind of follows this quite, in a way, traditional story about how the entrance of global real estate capital has brought forward all these struggles over the meaning and value of land. And I try to point to the ways that the agrarian world kind of leads these transformations and kind of contorts them and and, 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 and subverts them. In the second half of or the second couple of chapters of the book, what I'm interested in then is how all this uh, the, the, or how all this kind of politics of land and, and, and urban transformation is shaping labor politics, uh, which takes me back to the to the research I was doing right at the beginning of my project, um, where, you know, my initial set of questions when I was in, spending time with um, uh, uh, industrial workers in the tenements and trade unions was, you know, well, you know, I, I get that you're, you're, you're going on strike at the factory or you're locking your boss in the in his office and beating him up with your shoes. But, you know, what about your claims to housing or like, what about your claims to public access to public space or services? And they would kind of look at me like, uh, like, you know, you, you don't get it. Like, uh, um, I don't care about this city. You know, you know what I mean? Like, um, and you know, that's partly because I came to a ground with a certain training in urban studies, which taught me to foreground a very particular itinerary of urban politics centered around territorial claims um 
and claims to like the nominal city. What we think about is kind of um, housing, infrastructure, um, and so on. And by following these workers' uh, struggles, so in the chapter six of the book, I follow kind of two um, quite long, t- t- uh, long uh, drawn out. Uh, industrial struggles led by f- uh, women workers at an, two auto parts plants in Gogown, and also a domestic workers kind of s- kind of struggles to unionize in Gogown. And I try to re- rethink these struggles not solely as um, kind of classic industrial struggles, but also struggles that are born out and of and from the city. And these are how might we think about a subaltern urbanism? not from the kind of rather slightly more masculinist um, spaces that we tend to study in urban studies and territorialized spaces, but from um, the kind of gendered spaces of the home, of the tenement, of um, of women's experiences in labor migration and mobility, and the different kinds of discourses that discipline and shape uh, women's labor in particular. So respectability becomes a particularly important um, tool when you study uh, women's politics in in disciplining uh, certain kinds of labour. Um, so what I and what I found in my research, and what I try and detail in chapter six, is the emergence of this kind of cosmo sort of cosmopolitanism that isn't bound to the particular particular itineraries of housing or urban space uh, in Gulgaon, but is kind of wedded together through long histories of migration across tenement rooms uh, in different cities in North India and set within a knowledge um, held by many, understood by many of these these workers that their lives would continue to be shaped by exploitative conditions of wage labour and household patriarchy. So, you know, that's the kinds of... um, parameters I wanted to try and understand urban politics and a sub and a kind of normally subaltern urbanism from um and that is the parameters I try to understand the terms of these of these series of of workers struggles um I guess the broader claim in doing so is to try to um upend slightly the masculine and territorialized nature of sub- subaltern urban literature um and think about um, a certain kind of mobilize an understanding of subaltern cosmopolitanism as developed, you know, by Vinay Gidwani and others. Um, how might we think about urban struggles not tied to the here and now of Gauguin, um Gauguin's formal politics, but tied together between a journey from West Bengal to Bihar to Delhi to then Gauguin, um, and how do we? What happens when we take those stories into account? Yeah, thanks. That was a great answer. Uh, but also, thanks for all your answers. It was just really wonderful hearing from you more about the book. Um, um, but before we let you go, I'd love to hear more about what you're what you're up to now. What is the next uh, the next project? And uh, if you're if you're doing something entirely different or extending this further? Yeah, so I'm kind of working on a slight extension in a way. It's not um, so tied to telling a story about. Uh, kind of global urbanization from Gauguin. Um So I'm currently working on a study of um, sort of property technology programs that are being unrolled across uh, India currently uh, by the central government, but with particular uh, fervor in Haryana and some other handful of other states. Uh, and that's kind of drawn from my time spent in the Patwari office, you know, working with bureaucrats who were involved in you know remapping plots reassigning 10 years reclassifying property titles um where digital technologies were increasingly playing uh, an important role in their in the kind of if you like the social practice of producing property social material practice of producing property um so similarly you know these new digital property technologies are heralded as a cure for, as you can imagine, every single social ill that policymakers and development institutions can imagine. So digital technologies are going to remedy gender inequality, uh, poverty, um, you know, educate poor education and everything. Um, what I'm interested in is how bureaucrats and engineers assemble and put together um uh, complex property regimes into 
digital data categories. Um, so, and that's, and so I'm embarking on a long form kind of ethnographic study of bureaucrats and engineers who work, who are working under a series of these digital property schemes uh, to look at how they work with state records, how they work with land's materiality to shape it into uh, a data category, but also the kinds of politics that emerge from the datification of property. So it's slightly different, but, you know, not, it's kind of drawn out of my experiences in Gogam. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And uh, we'd love to read uh, this stuff as it starts coming out. Um, yeah, um, but thanks again for taking our time to speak to us about uh, about your very wonderful book, Subaltern Frontiers, Agrarian City Making in Gurgaon. Um, I'm sure our viewers, uh, I mean, got a really good sense of where the book's going. And this is going to speak to a wide variety of scholars ranging from urban geography, ethnography, um, uh, subaltern politics. Um, so thanks again for writing this book and for speaking to us about it. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed it. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.